Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what's happening in Iran? On the 13th of September this year, a 22-year-old woman was arrested in Iran by the state's so-called morality police for allegedly wearing her hijab too loosely. Three days later, she was dead. The state has claimed she did not meet a violent end, but her family don't accept this. At her funeral, in protest, women ripped their headscarves off in solidarity, and the demonstrations just grew from there across the country, with Iranians taking to the streets in unprecedented ways to protest against the restrictions faced by women, but also more generally against the current regime. The government has since launched a brutal attack, limiting access to the internet, deploying riot police, arresting, detaining and even disappearing protesters. To look at everything that's been happening since that day, the 13th of September, I'm joined today by Dr. Paola Rivetti, an Associate Professor in Politics and International Relations here in DCU. Her research interests focus on the government of societies and polities in the Middle East and on social and political mobilizations. So she's obviously been watching the events in Iran unfold very closely. Thanks so much for joining us, Paola. And can you tell us who Masa Amini is and what we know about what happened to her? So Masa Hamini was a young uh, woman of Kurdish origin who was traveling to Tehran to visit some family relatives with part of her family. So we're in mid-September, we're in the city center, and what happens is that while they were trying to, you know, uh, get on the metro uh, train, um, the morality police stopped Masa along with her brother and arrested her. So she was taken into custody and uh, a few days later she was um, in a coma, recovered in a, um, in a hospital where she actually died after being there for, for three days. So the family was not um, informed about what was going to, what, what had happened. And actually she was, uh, the family was contacted and informed after she was, she died now, the, what is happening in Iran is, the, if we want, is the result uh, or the tipping point of a very long trajectory where uh, we have seen, especially during the past summer, a number of young women, very similar to Mahsa, um, so young and covered in, and, you know, respecting, in a way, the uh, obligation of wearing the hijab in different ways. Perhaps, you know, they were not, according to the morality police, they were not wearing it, uh, you know, in an appropriate way, but still, you know, being covered and uh, being in the city and being arrested and um, basically tortured and, you know, enforced to confess. So the death of Massa is an exceptional, if we want, um, event because uh, the other women did not die while in custody of the morality police. But what happened to her is definitely not, um, you know, something that hasn't happened before. Um, So the fact that she died, and we don't know how she died, of course, we have a state, um, you know, official version, according to which Massa had some long-standing heart issue and that's why she um, you know she died and then we have other versions um, which of course tell a very different story of Massa being abused by the police while in custody so what happened to Massa is was somehow a symbol that the people of Iran recognized as a symbol of abuse of being abused but also as a symbol of rebellion against those abuses. 
When and how did we hear about Massa's death and what was the subsequent reaction once the news had been out there? So what we know is that we heard quite early in the day about the story of this Kurdish-Iranian woman being in hospital in a coma. And actually, uh, the journalist who reported uh, for the first time the news about, you know, about about Massa being in a coma in a hospital is a female journalist and she was arrested a um, few days after the first um, the first protest erupted um, in the country, uh, so we know quite early um, we knew quite early that Massa Amini was unwell and was in the hospital. And actually, the very first protests took place in Tehran, just in in front of the hospital where she was uh, where she was in coma. But the um, bigger protest erupted um, at her funeral. So it's, here it is very, it's very important uh, to emphasize and underline the fact that Massa was, a Kurd, was an Iranian of Kurdish origin. So she was a Kurdish young woman. In fact, the very first big protests that erupted, erupted at her funeral uh, in her hometown, in the Iranian area, in the sorry, Kurdish area of Iran. And that's very important because it also speaks to a history of discrimination, a history uh, of deprivation and repression that Kurdish Iranian people, so in the Kurdish area of Iran, um, have been enduring, um, you know, for decades. And this is really important to understand also why in places like Kurdistan, the protest movement is so resilient. Uh, even today, although we do have protests in many other places and cities in the country, in Tehran, for instance, in the capital, but what we can see is that the protest movement is particularly strong and resilient in peripheral areas. Kurdistan, the Kurdish area of Iran in the first place, but also in the south of southeast of the country, in the region, in a region called Baluchistan and Sistan Baluchistan. Um, protests are particularly uh, resilient. And the reason why this is the case is that we're talking about peripheral, discriminated against region, which have a strong and important history of resistance against the central state and in particular against the Islamic Republic. Yeah, because that resilience and resistance does need to be strong because the regime has responded uh, quite brutally to the protests, haven't they? Yes, definitely. The regime, unfortunately, has uh, repressed quite brutally the protests. Um, As soon as the end of September, they were already shooting live ammunition on the crowds protesting in places like Tehran, but also other cities. I think they have um, also diversified, um, if that's the right word, diversified the uh, strategies of repression that they are engaging in. Uh, so on the one side, we see what we could call more classical, if you want, repression strategies. Um, so the shooting, the beating up of protesters who take to the street. But we have also seen other strategies, um, very, very concerning and worrisome. Uh, for, so for instance, the kidnapping and torturing of very young women. Uh, teenagers, basically, who have uh, participated in the protest or who are or who are leading the protest, especially in high school, in places like high schools and, you know, other other places where teenagers actually are, you know, spend time. Um, so what, what has this has happened in the in few cases? Um, well, one is too many already. 
where we had the, these young women, 16, 17-year-old, be kidnapped, uh, so disappearing, and then uh, we have their families finding uh, their bodies, bodies that have been clearly subjected to torture, to rape, and other you know, awful things. Um, and I think this is a strategy that the regime is um, pursuing in the hope that this will scare not only the protesters, but the parents of the protesters. Since in the past two to three weeks, what we have seen has been also a uh, diversification of the places where the protests take place. So it's not, the protests are not exclusively in public spaces and squares and streets, but they also take place in, in schools, for instance, or universities. So targeting teenagers is a deliberate uh, strategy to scare the parents of those teenagers. As we're speaking of the government there, for those who might not know, what type of system is in place in Iran right now? In Iran, we have an Islamic Republic in place. So it's a Republican system in the sense that uh, we have elected um, offices, such as the President of the Republic, such as the Parliament. We have three different um, powers of the state, executive, legislative and judiciary, and all these, um, the institutions that exert the executive, legislative and judiciary power are independent of each other. So in a way, it's a system that is very much similar to um, you know, to, to to kind of republican and democratic systems we have in place in, um, you know, in Europe, for instance. However, this is only part of the system because the other part of the system is a, um, you know, is a religious one. What does it mean? It means that we have religious leaders who are those who actually supervise the democratic part of the system and assess whether the policies that, for instance, the, par- the laws or the policies that the parliament and the government are putting in place are religiously sound enough to be implemented and to be approved. Uh, so this creates a sort of um, a, a system where you have two powers, if you want. The, the a power which is elected, which has accountability towards the population, the president of the republic, for instance, or um, local um, elected officials or the, or, the, or the MPs in the parliament. But on the other side, you have this unelected and therefore non-accountable uh, authorities. Among these authorities, we have the supreme leader, whom you might have heard his name, Ali Khamenei, who is the highest and most powerful office in, in, the, in the system, in the whole Islamic Republic. So Ali Khamenei oversees the, the non-elective uh, and kind of religious part of the system. Not only that, he has a direct control over all law enforcement forces, including the military and all the, the other, um, uh, the security apparatus in general. And he also oversees the judiciary uh, system and the judiciary power. Therefore, Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader, has a you know has a lot of power. is the most powerful um, office in the country. Meaning that uh, you know, meaning that the um, democratic accountability of the elected system is uh, in a way weakened by the fact that we do have a religious leader who might overpower 
the democratic accountability of the president of the republic, for instance. Where then do women fit into this kind of dual system? How are they treated generally? Women have always been very active in the Islamic Republic. They've been very much present in the public sphere and in all sorts of political and social spheres and activities. Um, The revolution, the Islamic Revolution of, of 1979 has had this paradoxical, if we want, effect because on the one side, by participating in the revolution and by leading as well, in part, the revolution, women were incorporated into this democratic system, were incorporated and made citizens by, uh, you know, by the virtue of their participation and activism in the revolution. But on the other side, what we know is after is that after the Islamic revolution, we have had the implementation of several patriarchal laws that basically were, in a way, trying to push back into the house women. So to take them them out of the public sphere, to make them, um, you know, citizens who were not uh, socially and politically too visible. So in in this in this system, therefore, in this kind of two double double headed, if you want, system where we have this Republican part, but we also have this. Uh, religious part, women have always tried to uh, kind of navigate, if you want, the contradictions between the two, because there are many contradictions between a um, between author- authorities that, in a way, want to push policies that would make Iran, if you want, more traditional on the one side, but on the other side, we also have authorities that perfectly understand that Iran is not a traditional society probably has never been, but is a very modern one, highly educated with um, a very young population which is um, connected to the global world. In a, in a way, they are, they are the real actors of globalization. So women try to navigate this contradiction. And by navigating this contradiction, what they try to do is to kind of appropriate more political and social visibility, appropriate more space Um, in the public and and social sphere. And I think what we are seeing today in Iran, the kind of protest movement that really centers the question of bodily autonomy and self-determination is very much the result of this contradiction. Obviously, navigating that contradiction is particularly difficult when the morality police exist. You've mentioned them already today, but how long have they been in operation? And can you tell us a bit more about their role in society? So the morality police is a branch of the um, of the law enforcement forces, which has been around um, since two thousand and five. Um, so the, their duty is to basically make sure that behavior and um, you know dressing and you know in general the appearance of the people in the public space is you know Islamically appropriate. What does it mean is unclear. And this is really, you know, this is an important point I would like to emphasize. When we think of the of this of life, of everyday life in the Islamic Republic, we don't have to think about a system that is constantly severing public space, constantly severing, um, you know, the political space and the space for dissent. The red lines between what we can do and what we can't do are constantly shifting. So we have had in the past governments under which the morality police was given less power because the government was uh, pushing for a more, if you want, liberal 
approach to compulsory veiling, for instance, the morality police were basically harassing less women in the public space. But under the current government, which is extremely conservative, what is the appropriate way of wearing the veil is, is given a much more stricter interpretation. And this is why, as I mentioned before, what we have seen in the past uh, months, especially over uh, during the last summer, has been an increasing number of women who were harassed and abused by the morality police in the public sphere. Because with the, with the election of the present, of the, of the current government under um, the leadership of Ibrahim Raisi, uh, we have a much more conservative interpretation of what is appropriate veiling. Are these protesters just demonstrating against the veiling or is there a whole liberalization agenda at play here? There's definitely more than the veil. Something I really want to emphasize is that what protesters are bringing to the streets with them in terms of demands is bodily autonomy. It's bodily autonomy and self-determination. This is really important. But this is an expansive demand. This is an expansive issue. Um, And so by, um, you know, through the question of the veil and through the question of, uh, um, I mean, the the demand of of being able to decide over their own bodies, Iranian men and women, of course, are uh, also touching upon other issues. Uh, We have the larger question of political authoritarianism, which is, of course, foundational and very important. Iranians are demanding freedom. More generally, we can hear that in the slogans, but they are also demanding a a dignified life. So there are very clear demands for economic justice. Uh, This is not the first time that Iranians take to the street to demand um, better living conditions. They've done it regularly. Uh, during the past 10, 15 years. Um, So they're demanding an end to the endemic corruption that we have in Iran, mismanagement of resources and generally speaking, public wealth. But they are also demanding a better better management of the economy under the sanctioned regimes. I think that the fact that the, um, the possibility to get a finalization of the JCPOA or the so-called nuclear agreement, and therefore the possibility of seeing the end of the um, uh, sanctions, economic sanctions against the Islamic Republic, has a lot to do with the, with the protests as well, in the sense that protesters are probably also feeling very much um, disillusioned with their own government, which is not able to, um, you know, to, to, to revive the negotiations for, for the nuclear agreement. Of course, this is not exclusively on a responsibility of the Iranian political class. We know very well that the Biden administration hasn't been particularly convinced and, um, um, let's say, yeah, strong in calling for, um, you know, for, for, for new negotiation rounds. But generally speaking, uh, from uh, the question of body autonomy to uh, domestic politics, to international politics, Iranians have a lot to protest against. Yeah, you've said there that there's been protests before. In what way are these protests that are happening now different to those? 
So there's a lot that feels different about these protests. Um, something I should say is that what we are seeing today in Iran in terms of numbers are not the biggest um, protests that we have seen, say, in the past 10 years. In 2019, uh, for instance, uh, protests were bigger in terms of numbers, in terms of uh, people uh, who were in the streets protesting. But this time they are very different because they, I think they really, um, they, they really target one of the foundations of the Islamic Republic. The body of women is, of course, not only in Iran. This is not valid for the Islamic Republic only. This is valid everywhere. But the body of women is, is, is really crucial for the question of state building, the question of nation building, the question of identity, who is with us, who's not, uh, who's not with us, who is part of the in-group, who's part of, you know, who's not, who's out of our group. In 1979, Khomeini said that women, the Iranian women, were in charge of showing to the world the strength of the Islamic revolution. And this instrument to show that strength was the chador. And this is just, you know, just a, an example of how crucial the body of women, how they behave, um, how we behave, how, you know, what kind of dress we use um, is really central to the construction of, of identity. So by protesting and criticizing the obligation uh, of veiling um, Iranian women are really targeting one of the core, one of the foundations of, of the Islamic Republic. And this is why I think these protests are really different. And I think regardless of how they will end, regardless of when and if these protests will end, I think this is a point of no return. There's also something, something else that makes these protests very different. And that's the importance given to, um, to the ethnic minority. The fact that Massa uh, was a Kurdish woman is really important. We can see that in the most important and famous slogan uh, uh, chanted by the protesters, woman, life, freedom, which is, you know, which comes from directly, comes from um, Kurdish uh, political uh, groups. This has a double meaning. On the one side, it is a way to, um, uh, to, to, to really speak about the, the, this long-standing discrimination that um, ethnic minorities, so non-Persian minorities in Iran, have been subjected to. This, of course, goes, uh, goes on since before the establishment of the Islamic Republic and since before the Islamic Revolution. But definitely the Islamic Republic has, hasn't dismantled uh, something that we might call Persian suprematism. Uh, but also speaks to, once again, to, I think, the question of anti-patriarchal politics. Because this slogan basically says that if women live in dignity and have a dignified life, then there's freedom for everybody. I think this is an extremely progressive and extremely important um, aspect of these protests. We've spoken about the government's crackdown on these protests and the regime have done things like limiting access to the internet. You mentioned the journalists who initially broke the story about Massa being arrested. How then are people organising under these kind of limitations? How are they contacting each other? How is this movement playing out? 
The internet's shutdown has been partial, not because the Islamic Republic was wanted to be nice to the protesters or to the people, but because Iranians have accumulated, if you want, a sort of uh, you know know-how and skills for basically uh, circumventing the, the shutdown. So uh, the possibility that the uh, the government and the authorities were you know just uh, shutting down the internet. So even if we had uh, days or hours during the day uh, when uh, internet was down and there was no way to uh, you know upload videos send messages or circulating news that was possible you know in other during other hours in the day or the day after so uh, this time so in 2009 also the the government shut down the internet for one week and it was a serious shutdown it was you know almost almost a total uh, shutdown this time is different i'm saying this because i think it's always important to remember that uh, th- there's a lot we don't know about how people are organizing on the ground and in general there's a lot we don't know about the protests we we are kind of dependent on you know the, the partial information that can get out of Iran. So, but we, we have some information. So, what we know, for instance, um, is that there is a sort of double uh, system that people and activists are using for organizing on the ground. So, we do have the um, the role of very important and kind of more solid organizations, such as, for instance, university students' organizations. Uh, which are extremely active and um, you know university campuses in the past week have been protesting and on strike non-stop so they kind of do reconfirm uh, their role as uh, you know as very important political um, political places political venues for you know for national politics in general so we have university students organization we also have trade unions so we, we do have yeah, more solid, more structures, sh- structured organizations that um, call for strikes, call for protests, and so forth and so on. But we also have another system of, um, you know, of organizing, of political organizing, which is much more informal, and uh, is is seems to be very much based on pre-existing um, connection, uh, based on friendship, for instance or based on, uh, you know, we're going to the same school, or we are we are spending time in the same, I don't know, uh, you know, public space. So we know each other from before. And what we know is that this informal uh, way of organizing was uh, basically about getting your friends uh, together uh, to go out at a certain time of, uh, of, of the night, especially, to engage in direct action. And the kind of direct action we have seen were rather radical. So we're talking about, for instance, we have seen setting on fire police stations or um, uh, setting on fire um, police cars or um, you know, even chasing uh, police agents for, you know, for, for beating them up, basically. But this, this kind of second informal organizing looked like rather uh, unstructured so there was no higher or you know superior coordination um you know managing for instance when these groups were going out for for direct action it it looked like quite um, unstructured and informal with that could there be a revolution or is it still kind of lacking that leadership that is needed for for something like that 
So uh, to, according, this is my reading, of course, this is my interpretation, but I think that we are lacking some of the typical um, processes that we see when uh, a revolution is about to take place, such as, for instance, defection in the, uh, in the security um, and police forces. We haven't that in Iran. We have had, uh, there were images and news circulating about some defections, individual defections of policemen in Sanandaj, which is a, the, a city in the Kurdish area of, of Iran. So we know that we might have had one, two, three individuals, policemen deciding to, you know, to side with the protesters, but that's not enough. We would need you know, a big part of the of the police forces deciding, for instance, not to shoot on the on, on the protester or deciding not to repress them. Something that is also missing is a leadership. And by a leadership, I don't necessarily think of uh, you know an old man <laughs> guiding the protesters. I'm not thinking, you know, of Khomeini or you know anything like that. But I'm thinking of a you know, can be very different type of leadership, like an horizontal leadership, for instance. But there has to be a uh, political entity, whether individual or collective, that can claim legitimization from below. So can claim that, you know, can claim leadership, basically, with uh, the support of the grassroots uh, movements and the grassroots activists that are actually, you know, operating today in the country. So we haven't seen that emerging yet. Um, what we have uh, seen uh, last week, for instance, was a document circulating on social media claiming or listing the demands of the protesters, but we don't know who wrote that document. So we don't know whether the document is genuine, whether that list of demands has the support of, of the grassroots or not. So that is that is also something that is missing, a leadership, a strong leadership, um, you know, for a revolution. But there is also, there's something else that should be said, is that um, I don't think um, that we should understand this cycle of protest as decontextualized from its own context. So what, what, what I mean is that this is a um, four, six weeks um, that protesters are protesting in Iran, but this is part of a larger and much longer trajectory uh, of multiple cycles of protests. And what we can see is that every uh, wave of protest, protesters are more prepared are better to do something, whether that's, I don't know, whether that's circumventing the internet shutdown or engaging in direct action. So if we place this wave of protests in that larger long-term trajectory, you know, we don't know whether the next wave of protests or perhaps in two or three waves of protests, we might have a really revolutionary um, situation. It's, of course, something we'll be keeping an eye on here in the journal and on The Explainer. Thanks so much, Paola, for joining us today and for giving us all of that information. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Dr. Rivetti for her expertise today. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us so that we can continue to make more just like this one. 
there's a couple of things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, or you can make a one-off donation there. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a really great way to make sure other people can discover it, listen, and love it as well. Thank you and catch you next time.